Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of History and Games, an audio and video podcast that celebrates the educational power of video games. How do I do it? Well, I play video games, everything from Pac-Man to Assassin's Creed, The Legend of Zelda to Super Mario Brothers, and I find the real history and stories hidden inside our favorite games. A quick shout out to my last episode with Dr. Alyssa Seppenwall, in which we discussed the Haitian Revolution. This is a subject matter I had never covered on History and Games, and it turned out to be a super interesting, fascinating discussion. If you haven't already, please check out that episode. You can find it on all audio platforms. And of course, my YouTube channel at History and Apostrophe Games. And if you like this podcast and you learn a lot from it, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash M-E-G-H-A-N-R Sullivan, S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N, and it lets me continue doing what I'm doing. So thank you very much. Well, you might've noticed that I've had a string of guests on from Barry Strauss to Josiah Ober to Alyssa Seppenwall, and they're all experts in their field, but the truth is none of them are huge gamers. And I realized I haven't been really focusing on the gaming side of history and games. So I decided to bring in another expert who not only has the impressive title of doctor, but also is a huge gamer. And I wanted to talk about how she sort of balances her love of history with her love of video games. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jones, Dr. Kira Jones, for that matter. How are you? I'm great, Meg. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here. And for those who are listening and not actually watching the video, can I just say that Dr. Jones has an awesome gaming chair behind her. (laughs) You tell the audience what that is and where you got it from? (laughs) Yeah, um, it is a uh, Racerback gaming chair, uh, red and black. And uh, I got it off of Amazon, I think. Yeah, Amazon's Um, kind of the place to be. I've been looking for a gaming chair do you find that one comfortable uh it's not that great honestly um <laughs> it, it's one of the cheaper models uh I got it because I thought oh you know of course gamer chairs are going to be great for working at home because who spends more time in their chair than gamers and it turns out they're not uh they they look really cool but ergonomically um you know they're not that great but but they you know, look so cool. they they do look very cool and um you know, my partner has one of the more um, like expensive ones and his is very comfortable. So. All right. So the first thing I like to do with all my guests is give them a chance to introduce themselves and talk about what they do and how they got into their field. And your story is really cool because it does really combine history and video games. So can you talk a little bit about what you do? Of course. Yeah. So um, I am an art historian and classicist by trade. Uh, I have been um, gaming since um, since I was very tiny. So gaming came well before the academia. Um, <laughs> and basically what happened is I went through a lot of school. Uh, I did my um, undergrad in classics in Latin, uh, switched over to art history for my master's and doctorate because I really love the ancient world. But I didn't love the languages so much. Uh, it's not something that I wanted to spend like 24 hours a day doing, whereas looking at cool art, yes, please. Um, <laughs> so I did that, um, did, you know, a perfectly normal dissertation on the Flavians and Minerva, and that was fine. But I graduated and decided 
you know what? I can do whatever the hell I want now. And that happened to be right when Assassin's Creed Odyssey came out. So I'm like, video games, love them. Ancient Greece, I'm all over it. You know, let, let's just do this. Uh, so I started doing a series of posts on Twitter, uh, hashtag art of AC Odyssey, uh, just talking about all of the monuments and kind of the different um, material culture callbacks that they had in the game. And, you know, things have just kind of snowballed from there. I've uh, kept doing it, branched out to Hades, uh, Destiny 2, um, you know, basically all of the different games that I'm into myself. And, you know, it's been really fun to kind of, you know, marry, you know, my professional interests, um, which are, you know, very academic together with this field of modern media reception, which I would argue should also be very academic, uh, just as uh, interesting and valuable as, you know, film scholarship or, you know, traditional text scholarship. So let's... Put a pin in that because you said some really interesting things I want to circle back around to, including I'm also a huge AC Odyssey fan. That's the only game I deliberately got a platinum trophy for. The other <laughs> platinum trophy I got was by accident. Thank you, Tales from Borderlands. Um, but I love, love AC Odyssey. I'm also huge. You can tell by my background for those mm -hmm. who are listening. I actually have a background picture of the Parthenon behind me. Um, and you mentioned Destiny 2, which I'd also like to circle back around because I thought that was super cool and interesting. But let's actually focus first on your history with video games. What do you remember mm -hmm. as being your first video game? Do you remember the first game you played? I do. Uh, it was um, Secrets of the Rainforest by Sierra. Wow. I don't think I played that one. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely not as well known as, say, like Quest for Glory or Space Quest. But it's pretty much the same idea. Um, so uh, you had this uh, very, very 90s kid. He had like the blonde curly mullet going on. Uh -huh. um, like even in his, his little pixel sprite, it was mullet town. Um, but he was um, he was basically this kid who was going around with his dad, I think, uh, and got lost in the rainforest. And... Uh, you had to like wander around solving all of these puzzles. And of course they had the Ferngoliad where you had to communicate with the forest. Uh, and he had this little like um, hand scanner thing where he could identify all of the animals around him and you would get points for it and it would give you like little factoids. So it was a, it, it was an educational game technically, but you know, it's also what really got me started on the whole Sierra track and uh, video games in general. Yeah, I got to give you a thumbs up for that. It's funny because I'm part of the Oregon Trail generation, quote unquote. Okay, so, I did that one too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that edutainment yep. part of it is exactly what inspired history and games. The idea that, you know, video games are not brainless. They can be educational as well as fun. And it also started my love of role-playing games because what is that if not a role-playing game? So I'm glad that you gave a shout out to a classic game. Do you have a particular genre that you fell in love with over the years? Yeah, definitely RPGs. Um, the game that like really turned me into a gamer was Baldur's Gate 1. Uh. Uh, so <laughs> um, obviously I'm all over the new Baldur's Gate, but yeah, Baldur's Gate 1, it was the first game that I really could like get sucked into and immersed in. Uh, and this idea that, you know, you could be 
like part of this fantasy world and like really be drawn into the story and make choices that affected the outcome you know that was you know that was just mind-blowing you know to kid me um so yeah Baldur's Gate started everything off and you know from there I went into all of the other Forgotten Realms games Neverwinter Nights Icewind Dale and those are all games that are kind of tied to D&D were you ever Mm -hmm. a tabletop RPG fan did you play Dungeons and Dragons growing up you know my friends tried to get me into it um but one of the things I love most about Baldur's Gate is that it does all the math for you (laughs) like the stories i'm there for character building okay but uh, as far as like stats and rolling dice and and stuff i just yeah i'm not a huge fan of it and you know no shade to anyone who is i totally get the appeal it's just you know not really for me so um you know something like a computer game where it just takes care of those mechanics and lets me enjoy the world, you know, that's great. I feel like we're kindred spirits. I'm having the same <laughs> thing with like Baldur's Gate 3 is, is a little uh-huh. difficult if you don't know the rules of the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Like it does all the math for me, but I don't quite understand the why. So mm-hmm. I've been struggling a little bit with the combat, but otherwise it is, it's just a fantastic story and characters mm-hmm. and everything. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, one of the games that you liked it takes place in ancient Greece, which mm-hmm. kind of brings us to your love of history. When did that start? Mm-hmm. Uh, that started uh, pretty much as early as I can remember. Um, you know, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was like four years old. And as I got older, that kind of switched over to mythology, um, you know, in elementary school. And, you know, actually, um, I found this the other day. And uh, for those of you who are listening, it is my um, wishbone binder. oh my gosh (laughs) so yeah it's um got wishbone as his uh odysseus uh costume self i think um so yeah my uh my love for history clearly started very early on um and you know continued that throughout high school just you know reading everything i could uh when i got to college i realized that you could basically major in it but going classics route and you know i was like okay yes done you know, I, I, I'm going to do that. And then you said you went on to do art history, which is mm-hmm. something I have considered going back to school for. Talk to mm-hmm. me about your experience uh, with art history. Yeah. So um, I uh, kind of went off the deep end with that. Um, I had taken maybe one or two art history courses when I applied to grad school. Um, but I knew that the material culture angle was one that I wanted to pursue. Um you know, again, like I was doing fine with my Latin, but, you know, I, I wanted to look at a bigger picture of the world. And uh, for me, you know, art history entails not just, you know, the primary sources like the ancient Greek and Latin works, but also archaeology, um, artworks, uh, architecture, you know, it's, these are all puzzle pieces that are you know, what we have left of the ancient world. And sure, you can hone in on one puzzle piece, like, you know, Greek or Latin, and get a lot out of that. But if you're missing the rest of the picture, then, you know, you're not getting as much out of it as you could. So uh, what I ended up doing was bringing in my knowledge of Greek and Latin to art history so that I could 
uh, you know, really get that broader interdisciplinary picture. Uh, right. So art history, art history does tend to focus on the material culture side of things. Um, and what it does is, um, you know, I have people ask me all the time, you know, oh, so are you an artist as well? Like, do you make art since you study art history? And I have to tell them, no, I am terrible at drawing. Uh, <laughs> just ask, ask my former students. They got stick figures every week. But, you know, it's about looking at how society uses art. Um, what factors lead to its creation, how it operates within a society. So like your Parthenon backgrounds, you know, how was that a part of the Athenian fabric of life? Uh, what do um, all the sculptures on it mean? What kind of resources did it take to build it? Uh, how did it function, you know, after antiquity? All that sort of stuff. It's the history um, of the art um, that encompasses you know, the wider society instead of just like the history of the artwork itself. You get out of school mm -hmm. and then you've got your doctorate, you've got your master's, you've got all this education. Mm -hmm. What was the next step for you? Yeah. So I kind of fell into the trap at first that if you have a PhD, you need to go into academia. Um, so I did a lot of adjunct teaching. Uh, I still do teach the occasional class. I do one on um, reception in modern media. So, you know, video games, webtoons, films, that sort of stuff. Uh, but, you know, the job market for academia right now is just absolutely terrible. Um, and what it really asks of you is when you get out of grad school, um, you, you need to spend the last year of grad school instead of writing, really applying to jobs. Uh, and if you're lucky, you get an adjunct position, which is going to pay you much less than minimum wage. Uh, you're going to be working insane hours, no benefits because it's a contract position and no job security because they're really only hiring you for, you know, a semester to maybe up to two years. You know, I, I just I decided near the end that I didn't want to do that. Um, I liked where I was living. Um, you know, my family's here. I had built a life. My friends were here. Uh, I couldn't really afford to move anyways. Uh, I did. I still do have student loans. So, you know, it's something that you always have to be conscious of. And um, I decided that uh, eventually, you know, I didn't need to be in academia in order to keep working on history and games. Uh, there was nothing stopping me from using my free time to, you know, talk about history and games online, to, you know, be involved in edited volumes. Um, my last article that came out was in the Women in Classical Video Games uh, edited volume on Hades. So, you know, I still do conferences. I still talk with people. Um, I still do podcast interviews, obviously. But I do it on my own time. So I'm not you know, beholden by, you know, these uh, academic ideals of what counts as good scholarship or not. I can just do what's interesting to me. And, you know, I, I think that combined with, um, you know, eventually, I'm not quite there yet, but eventually having a good paying, stable job, um, you know, for me, at least that's, that's going to be the right answer. Um, you know, it's a, a little bit of both worlds and uh, the best of both worlds, I think. Right. And I, and I like that you're able to pivot. I had just seen a video of uh, someone I interviewed for History and Games, friend of the show, mm -hmm. Dr. Jackson Crawford. Right. And he also had 
sort of cautioned, you know, if you if you go sort of the history and professor route, it's pretty brutal out there. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to know that you can pivot and that that pivot has uh, a lot of benefits, including sort of working on your own time and mm -hmm. doing what you want. What's What's been your favorite project that you've worked on recently? I mean, um, right now I am doing a lot of work on Destiny 2. Um, so that is, uh, again, on my own time. I'm not really doing it for anyone. Um, but I'm looking a lot at, you know, how Destiny as a game that is not set in antiquity, it is uh, very much set in space, um, but how they use uh, art history to construct their cultures. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So, um. Uh, I think, did you mention that you played Destiny 2 or you were interested I, in it? I, I have played Destiny 2. I played with my friends. It's been a while, okay. though. So it's it's been at least a couple of years, but I did enjoy it. So I'm very interested in knowing how you sort of extract the, the history from a very, for those who don't know, Destiny 2 is a um, multiplayer game that you can play online with your friends and it takes place in a sort of fictional sci-fi universe so I, I actually put on my notes earlier, Destiny 2, question mark, exclamation mark, like, ooh, I want to hear more <laughs> about this. So talk to me a little bit about the history that you found yeah. in Destiny 2. Yeah, so I mean, just to give a, a brief background to the game, um, you've got the Earth, right? And um, the Earth has gone through a golden age spurred on by the arrival of this gigantic golf ball in the sky that we call the Traveler. Uh, it has basically terraformed a bunch of planets, um, but it has uh, an enemy um, called the Darkness, which is, um, you know, a big fleet of uh, pyramid-shaped black ships that come and uh, try to uh, destroy everything it has created. So obviously, since we've been taking advantage of the Traveler, that's bad news for us. Uh, we get the collapse uh, and humanity kind of goes by the wayside for a while. Uh, when we come back, um, the Traveler has basically sent out these little tiny floating robots called ghosts that can resurrect people uh, from you know, basically any time period, a lot of it ends up being golden age, but, you know, I think as long as there's, like, some remnant of a body there, then they can just, like, resurrect it or whatever. Um, and these uh, guardians come back with uh, no memory of their prior life, but basically superpowers. So you can imagine, like, a toddler with, uh, you know, the powers of, like, Superman, then that's that's kind of what goes on. Um, so it's the Guardian's job then to fight against the forces of darkness and to defend the Earth. So with that, we get a bunch of alien races coming in. Uh, we've got the Fallen, who are kind of, um, you know, these uh, bug-like creatures that are uh, very tribal um, in a lot of ways. They operate in houses and they live on ships. Um, their world has been destroyed, so they're kind of trying to move into ours. You've got the Cabal, whose world has also been destroyed. Um, they live on fleets. They're heavily based on the Roman Empire. Um, you know, the the various soldiers are called th things like centurions and legionaries. Um, and, you know, you've got uh, the emperor who leads them. It's a very militaristic society. Uh, pretty much everything that describes them is some form of a Latin word. So it's 
very, very obviously based on Rome. Uh, then you've got um, creatures like the Hive, who are, um, you know, these evil uh, bug people who rely a lot on ritual magic and ally themselves with darkness. And, you know, that's a, a very uh, superficial kind of explanation of it. But, you know, TLDR, we've got all of these alien races that have these different um, eras of, you know, let's say Earth history that's inspiring their culture and how um, their particular world is built. So what I'm looking at is, you know, what that history is. So with the Cabal, what periods of Roman history um, are actually being used uh, to build the narrative for that race? Uh, what kind of architectural details are being taken into account when we see things like their ships or, you know, their military machines? Um, and what actually got me started on this whole trek was uh, when the Witch Queen expansion came out. Uh, we finally get to meet Savathun, who is my new best friend. Uh, I love <laughs> her so much. Uh, but um, I, I'm trying to think if I can say this without spoiling too much, but I, I think I kind of have to, to get my point across. So, Okay, spoiler um, alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Um, mute this podcast for the next five minutes if you don't want to hear about Witch Queen. Uh, basically, uh, Savathun gets the like. She becomes a guardian. And so when we go into her throne world, which is kind of her little pocket of space that um, she can mold according to her own thoughts, uh, we get two distinct halves of it. One is a very Southern Gothic. It's swampy. It's full of, you know, mysteries and hive rituals and magic. And then the other half is this shining white Gothic cathedral city. Uh, with stained glass windows and all of this like high gothic sculpture that's built into the walls and you know I was just kind of looking at it and like whoa you know what a dichotomy this is you know we've got this one figure who has done like a complete 180 stylistically now that she has the light right and I started comparing that with you know medieval ideas um, on what the light was and uh, a guy named uh, Bishop Shiger, uh, he was like right at the forefront of cathedral building. And his idea was that uh, it, cleansing through Christianity is um, shown by light. So when you have all of this light coming into cathedrals, that's a reflection of, um, you know, cleansing and the love of God. So if you put that into context with Savathun, she's suddenly been resurrected as a guardian now. She's got all of this light in her. Um, you know, and it has, you know, erased her memory of, you know, being the witch queen um, of the hive. You know, she's reinvented herself now. So we've got all of that element of like forgiveness and resurrection and kind of the ability to remake herself that's coming in, you know, along with this Gothic architecture, which is, you know, what it was built for to symbolize, um, you know, in the Middle Ages as well. So it just, it fits. And, you know, when I first got to that area, there's this one part in the intermission where you walk in and she's got like this huge stained glass rose window with all of these buttresses and there's just light streaming in everywhere. And I'm like, 
oh my god you know i i need to i i need to write about this um i I need to think about this and you know i put out a bunch of very nonsensical posts on twitter uh because twitter was still alive back then and (laughs) it was still twitter right yeah uh it was still twitter in so many ways uh and then you know after that you know, I played through the expansion, played through the next one. And I'm like, but wait, Bungie's doing the same thing with the darkness and the cabal and the Vex. And, you know, there's a book in here, <laughs> you know, and nobody is looking at Destiny 2. That's a crazy thing. I, I found one other person who actually works on Destiny 2 as like kind of a humanities-based academic. Uh, but I think that because it's like a first person shooter and because it's set in space, it just flies under the radar for a lot of people. It's funny that you, I never really stopped to think that Destiny 2 has a ton of history and cultural touchstones mm-hmm. in it and that it's, you know, that you discovered it, um, which is, I've, I loved it. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Um, what other games do you think... Uh, have a lot of hidden history in them that might be flying under people's radar. Can you think of anything else besides Destiny 2 that people should take a closer look at? I know like the obvious ones, like Assassin's Creed games pride themselves or, you know, Civ yeah. 5, 6, 4, 3, 2, 1. Mm-hmm. Like we we know the obvious ones, but are there any others mm-hmm. you can think of? You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about it until I played this game, but this has a ton of history in it. I mean, you could argue every mm-hmm. game has some cultural touchstone, but yeah. are there any other standouts for you? Yeah, there's one that I did a a paper on a while ago, actually. Um, it's Disco Elysium. People uh, love that game. I still haven't played it. I just haven't found the time. But people do. They like write dissertations on it. It's so messed up. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it, the absolute like most trash fire of a human being main character and you know the game just like goes through and just drags him through the mud uh which led me to realize he's totally an Oedipus figure Uh. you know he's comes in as this detective and he's like you know oh you know I'm a detective even though like he can't remember anything about his past he got like so blackout high and drunk at the same time that he completely erased his own memory of himself uh and like he wakes up and he knows that he's a cop so he just decides to go around being mr detective uh with uh kim kitsuragi who is one of the most amazing sidekick video game characters ever uh we we do stand kim um but the way that the game narrative builds on you know his blindness to his own past and his you know reactions as more and more of it gets unveiled and he realizes the terrible things that he's done you know it's it it's 100 greek tragedy um you know and you know it just it lines up with oedipus so well so yeah that that would be my candidate um are there any shout outs to any games that are sort of uh that take place in different parts of the world and have different mythology yeah um let me out look up the name because I want to make sure I get it right. Um, yeah, Raji. Um, yes, I love yes. that game. I'm so glad you gave it a shout out. Yeah, it is so beautiful. It's um kind of like this pseudo platformer, uh, but it's really friendly for you know non-platforming people like me. 
uh, but it is based in uh, Hindi mythology. Uh, it was written by an Indian studio, so they've got the language right, they've got the accents right, they've got the myths right. Um, you play as Raji, who is trying to get, you know, her brother back, and there's shout out to all of the younger brothers who drive video game narratives by doing absolutely stupid things uh, <laughs> and getting caught by villains, because uh, I swear they're everywhere. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's just absolutely absolutely gorgeous um you know everything about that game is great highly recommend it all right that's really cool and then here's a question for you mm -hmm. what uh what time period in history or what culture has not appeared or has appeared very little in video games that you would like to see or see more of if you suddenly had the money and the coding abilities to create your own game mm -hmm. what kind of history game would you make hmm i think if i had to I've got two answers to that. So if I had to make one with the knowledge that I have, uh, it would probably be a game set in Etruria. Uh, you know, there's a um, uh, there's a horror game called Yuppie Psycho that uh, has like this entire sort of mini story that's, you know, pretty heavily based on Etruscan ideas. Um and it's it's kind of a batshit game, actually. Uh, also <laughs> recommend it if uh, you like point-and-click horror. Uh, it's very well done. Um, but yeah, other than that one reference, like, you get references to, like, the mysterious Atraskans and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I think we have enough knowledge of the culture where we could put something together that's convincingly accurate. So my second answer to that is uh, I would really love to see a good like indigenous american game yeah. um you know just one that is actually made um sensitively with tribal consultations uh there's one um being built in um uh in mexico right now dream of darkness that's kind of a lovecraftian take on aztec mythology and they're doing it um really well but again you know it's aztec you know i want to see something for first nations people um that is you know really a good interactive experience of their culture um that is you know it, it's not assassin's creed type of thing um I, I would not trust ubisoft to do it uh at least not do it correctly um but yeah you know they just they need something i guess the final thing i wanted to ask you is what are you mm -hmm. up to now what are you working on besides destiny 2 which <laughs> it's really awesome right so um i mentioned my uh hades chapter that just came out uh i do have one um coming out soon on um, assassin's creed uh it'll be in um the assassin's creed in the classroom volume uh that is coming out from degreuter i think um we just sent the proofs off so it'll probably be another year or two before it shows up on shelves um, but that one is on an event that I ran in the uh, Michael C. Carlos Museum, which was um, kind of a joint uh, play Assassin's Creed um, origins and um, stuff on Xboxes in the upper room while I lead you on curated gallery tours about Assassin's Creed 
you know, through the Greek and Roman and Egyptian galleries. So, oh, wait, we got to back up. You got to tell me more about this in detail. <laughs> Hold on. All right. so you were going, cause I've always dreamed of this, like, like yeah. dragging people through like the Met or something yeah, and then yeah. tying the, the bits of history to mm -hmm. video games. How, do, how does this work? Yeah. So, um, the chapter is actually all about how, you know, video games fit into, uh, museum pedagogy. Uh, and, you know, gallery tours tend to, um, you know, either be very prescriptive and that you follow the guide around and they tell you about art and then you leave, or they tend to be very interactive where they are asking you, you know, what do you think about this art? How are you understanding it? What things from your life, um, you know, are giving you insights into this work of art? Uh, you know, when I do a gallery tour, it tends to be more of the latter because I think that people pay attention more that way. And, you know, that brings in the whole issue of video games as a lived experience. So there's a lot of discourse um, on this out there. Uh, if you want to read up on it, um, a lot of ink has been spilled on, you know, how video games differ from things like books or movies. Um, things that, you know, again, you go there and you are shown, but it's a set narrative. You can't change it. Uh, when you sit down to a video game, you know, especially something like an RPG, you know, you're going to be pouring hours of your life into this. Uh, you're going to be thinking through decisions that manipulate the world. Uh, it's a very tactile experience. You know, even if you're playing with a controller, um, you know, or a VR headset, you're still using your body to actually navigate around the game. So, you know, I argue and, um, you know, a lot of other people have as well that, you know, the way that the brain codes this is as a lived experience. So it then becomes a memory that you can draw on to understand the world around you. And um, just as, you know, kind of an aside, this is very nerdy, but um, you know, back when Skyrim first came out, I, I played the heck out of that game. I put in a lot of hours, a lot more than yep. I should have. Uh, but it got to the point where I was like driving down the interstate and I saw a bush on the side of the road that looked like a harvestable bush in Skyrim. And like, there's a split second when I almost instinctively pulled over to go get berries from that bush. So I'm like, oh, I need to harvest that. It's like, no, no, that's in a video game. You are in your car. You cannot pull over here. But, you know, it's just that sort of reaction is just your brain making that connection. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. Go, go do that thing over there. We need that resource. Uh, and, you know, when you get people to tap into that sort of knowledge in a museum gallery to understand art, you know, it makes that connection between this actual object from history and themselves it makes it that much more um you know interactive for them and you know personally I found that you know if we encourage people to bring in their fandom knowledge you know whether that's in comics or tv shows or especially video games you know it breaks down that kind of academic ivory wall um between you and your audience because suddenly you know, what you're talking about isn't based on, you know, privileged information anymore. It's not based on a set of data that they may not have had access to. It's based on something that they have experienced, they're confident in. Um, and suddenly it's like, oh, wait, history can be for me too. You know, I, I've already done something that relates to this. 
Um, so it really just breaks down a lot of barriers that makes for very good conversations. And um, yeah, thankfully that event was uh, a huge hit. So and just to clarify, did you did you give the tour? I did, yeah. Um, so what we did was um, the uh, the Michael C. Carlos Museum is um, on um, Emory's campus, which is where I did my PhD. So I'd done a lot of work with them already. Um, they had planned to do this event with the Microsoft Store where Microsoft would, you know, loan them like travel Xboxes so that they could play through um, the um, the Discovery Tours on Origins. And I was like, oh, you know, that's going to be fabulous. Have you thought about doing museum tours with that? And they're like, we can do museum tours with that. Tell me more. So um, I ended up throwing together three tours. Um, two of them are based on Origins. So I did one on... Uh, Republican Rome, uh, as seen in the game, since we do spend a little bit of time there, Caesar shows up. Um, we have a lot in the Greek and Roman galleries. Uh, and then one on Alexandria um, and uh, Cleopatra, uh, which we also had some objects for. And then the third one, um, it was about a week before Odyssey came out. So I tried to get a demo that we could play. They would not go for it. Um, but uh, instead, we just had a bunch of uh, game footage um, uh, from streamers that was uh, looping on a big screen along with trailers, developer interviews, stuff like that. And then I built um, a tour in the Greek galleries around, you know, what I thought that we were going to see based on what we knew about the game. So I knew it was going to be, you know, during the Peloponnesian War, it's probably going to have a lot of stuff in Athens. I knew that there was at least going to be one Gorgon um because you know that's the battle that they showed off so yeah um I was able to you know kind of build the tour around that and about what we might be able to expect so I, I did lead all three of those uh was a lot of fun had no voice at the end of the day but um yeah we uh we had you know well over 100 people um come through during the course of the day which is you know pretty good for a small campus museum so. That's really awesome. I love hearing that. And I really hope that more museums do something like that where it's accessible. Mm -hmm. It's accessible to people. As you said, it's a living experience, right? You have that visceral experience of playing a game and living yeah. through the protagonist and then actually seeing the things like, oh my God, this was in the game. And mm -hmm. now I'm actually seeing the real object in yeah. front of me, whether that's, you know, like a sword or a shield or pottery mm -hmm. that's mentioned in the game. It's a really, really cool, fun experience. So I'm so glad that you set that up. And if you have any more tours and you come out to California <laughs> for any reason, or you know someone who's doing that, let me know, please. Cause Definitely. I would love, yeah, yeah. love to participate in that. Well, thank you so much for participating in this interview. I learned so much today. I learned so much about Destiny 2's history. I love that we gave shout outs to different games around the world mm -hmm. that have history. Uh, we talked, we nerded out about like Disco Elysium and uh, Baldur's Gate 3, mm -hmm. Um, any upcoming history games that you're looking forward to before we go? Uh, yeah, I mean, Assassin's Creed Mirage is looking really good. Um, there's one I've been involved with called, uh, Builders of Greece, which is a, um, kind of a, uh, it's a tiny little sim game where you build a Greek colony. Um, so yeah, there's, um, a lot of good games on the horizon. Uh, one thing I do on Twitter and I'll, probably be doing on whatever other platforms I end up on 
is uh, whenever Steam Deck Effects comes around, I'll do reviews of the demos for any uh, ancient history games. Um, so yeah, um, you can find me um, as Flavian Sophist at you know Twitter, uh, Mastodon, um, you know probably Blue Sky once I get on there. Um, so anything I do that has to do with games, you know, check my social; it'll be on there at some point. Right. Do you have a website or YouTube channel or anything you want to give a shout out to? I do have a website, uh, FlavianSophist.com. Perfect. This was such a fun interview. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to have to have you on again to nerd out about more history stuff that in the future. Great. Yeah, it's been so much fun. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones. Thank you.